We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. Gonna take it right into the danger zone. In 1939, Stalin did a deal with Hitler. He would get half of Poland and other countries, which aren't important just now, although it was important to them, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Finland and other countries, because he was also swiping parts of those other countries too. Anyway, Hitler attacked Russia in 1941 before Russia could attack Germany, and then all hell broke loose for the next four years in a titanic struggle between the Nazis and the Communists. Things didn't go well for Hitler in that war, He ended up placing second, which isn't a good place to end up in a war. By the end of World War II, Stalin had swept through all of Eastern Europe and half of Germany. Stalin wanted to keep his ill-gotten gains in Poland from his deal with Hitler. So he kept the half of Poland that Hitler had promised him and kicked out those unpleasant Poles. But Stalin was nothing if not a fair man, And so he helped the Poles by kicking the Germans out of an equally large slab of their country, forcing them to leave land that they had lived on for hundreds of years, time immemorial. Six million ethnic Germans were expelled from their homes, most of them women, children and elderly people. The Russians had killed all of the military-age males or sent them to their labour camps, where many were worked to death. Another 6 million Germans were expelled from Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Romania and Yugoslavia. During all these massive population movements, maybe 500,000, maybe 1.5 million Germans died. Who cares? Lots of other Europeans died too in those horrific apocalyptic times. Stalin never had any problems brutally expelling people from lands they lived on for hundreds of years. He also expelled all of the Tatars from their homeland in the Crimea. They had preferred the Nazis to the communists, who had been particularly brutal to them before the German invasion. The Russians also expelled enormous numbers of Germans who had been invited to permanently move to Russia by Catherine the Great in the 1700s. So they had lived in the Caucasus on land given to them by her for 200 years before their expulsion. Most of the Kulak peasants from Ukraine were expelled. Millions of them died before they could be expelled or died in the godforsaken places they were sent to by Stalin. Greeks from the Russian side of the Russian border were also forcibly relocated. Stalin had no problems shifting millions of people from their homes to other parts of Russia, mostly Siberia. You may be shocked to hear that if those many millions of people had a right to return where they originally came from, Stalin never did anything about it. 
But hypocrisy in the left is their standard stock in trade, and so it came to pass that on 11 December 1948, the United Nations passed the resolution acknowledging the right of return of the so-called Palestinian refugees to return from where they'd come from in what was now Israel, even if they'd only lived there for less than two years. And that right of return has many issues, which I'll talk about later. I'll also discuss later, but I'll mention now, that no North African or Middle Eastern Muslim country voted in favour of this resolution that they rely on all the time now for a right of return, because that would have acknowledged the right of the State of Israel to exist, which is something they mostly have never done. A few exceptions have happened in recent times. And you shouldn't be surprised to hear that Russia voted in favour of that resolution. No one at the United Nations dared to suggest to Russia that all of the peoples that the communists had been moving around against their wishes to swipe their territory, their homes and all their property should have a right to return where they came from and to get their stuff back. Those refugees, some of the luckier victims of communism, because they got to keep their lives, just had to do what every other refugee in the world has had to do from time immemorial, which is to shut up, find somewhere else to live, and get on with life. Unless, apparently, they're that most unique creature, a Palestinian refugee. So let's see the recent history of the world's refugees, other than the Palestinians, of course, so far as they're right. Okay, let's start with some basic facts that you probably won't know. There's been a worldwide practice of population exchanges. These have happened on a massive scale. I'll talk about one example because it involved a lot of Muslims. Although one major other one could be mentioned as it involved Muslims as well. And that was the exchange of populations between Greece and Turkey at the end of World War I. But I'm not going to go into that one. The biggest example of a population exchange that involved Muslims, since that religious group is obviously one of our main focuses of these programs on the one side, and Sikhs and Hindus on the other. This population exchange took place in the 1950s, when the Indian subcontinent gained independence from the British Empire. In that exchange, 8,500,000 Sikhs and Hindus from Pakistan fled to India, and roughly 6,500,000 Muslims moved from India to Pakistan. Even in crowded, waterlogged West Bengal, according to the New York Times of 16 April 1961, where refugees streamed, appropriate word for that part of the world, from East Pakistan, the refugees felt their only hope for solace was among people who spoke their language, had the same dietary habits, and shared their customs and traditions. The exchange, though, had not come about peacefully, as reported by the Times of London of 28 August 1947. Muslims have been murdering Hindus and Sikhs. 
Hindus and Sikhs have been murdering Muslims. Each side blames the other with passionate vehemence and refuses to admit that its own people are ever at fault. Yet, contrary to the attitudes of the Muslims in the Middle East, for once I'll use the term Arabs, since I'm talking about other Muslims who are from other parts of the world, Pakistani President Mohammed Ayub Khan, at a Cairo press conference in 1960, announced that he had directed his people to deal with their own refugees without substantial support from Muslim brethren over the world. He suggested that Pakistan's settlement of its nearly 7 million refugees from India might act as an example for the three-quarters of a million refugees from Palestine in the Arab countries. As the New York Times article above correctly observed, refugees find solace when the place that they're going to, they'll be among people who speak their language, have the same dietary habits, and share their customs and traditions. And more importantly in this case, religion. The notion of sending the Palestinian refugees into a Jewish, mostly secular society is clearly a long, long way from the ideal using those criteria. This isn't only my view. It was a view bluntly expressed by the Grand Mufti, Hajj Amin al-Husseini, when he gave evidence before the Peel Royal Commission in mid-January 1937, trying to come to grips with the problems in Palestine, between the Jews and the Muslims. He said, It is impossible to place two distinct peoples who differ from each other in every sphere of their life in one and the same country. At that time, and even today in the Middle East and countries bordering Israel, I think he's right. The history of the Middle East has made this abundantly clear, at least from the Muslim point of view. The Jews have shown themselves to be more than capable of actually living with Muslims, as the 157,000 Muslims who stayed living in Israel during and after the 1948 Arab-Israeli war show. Today, those Muslims number about 2.5 million. I'll talk later about so-called Palestinian refugees that Israel has nonetheless admitted. The Muslim countries in the Middle East and North Africa, after expelling their Jewish populations after the 1948 Arab-Israeli war, have now practically achieved that Nazi ideal of being Judenrein, free of Jews. The right of return, it's not actually what you think it is, but more of that at the end of this program, proposes the opposite result. Cramming 5.9 million Muslims into a country with 7,145,000 Jews is clearly never going to work. And the Muslims know that, as I'll show from some later comments. What the Muslims push as the right to return home is an evil idea designed to cause extreme violence and bloodshed. Joan Peters, in her 1982 book from Time Immemorial, said, In the rasters of the world's unfortunate shifts of population, the number of refugees is staggering. From 1933 to 1945, a total of 79,200,000 souls were displaced. 
since the Second World War, at least 100 million additional persons have become refugees. In the over 40 years since she wrote, sadly, many more tens of millions of people have become refugees. Another thing that you probably won't know, and I'll be covering this in much greater detail in a later program, is that there were as many, probably more, Jews who were expelled from Muslim countries after the 1948 Arab-Israeli War. The value of the assets those Jews were forced to abandon was infinitely greater than the value of the assets of the so-called Palestinian refugees that they left behind. The Muslims are well aware of the issue of Jewish refugees who were actually expelled from Muslim countries that those Jews had lived in for over 2,000 years before the arrival of the Muslims. The Palestinian refugees mostly left at the request of militant Muslims to give the invading Muslim armies the clear fields of fire that they were wanting. This Arab concern was revealed in an unusually candid article written for the Beirut journal Al-Nahar in May 1975 by Sabri Jirius, an Arab researcher, author and member of the Palestinian National Council. In May of 1975 he wrote... This is hardly the place to describe how the Jews of the Arab states were driven out of their homes, shamefully deported after their property had been commandeered or taken over at the lowest possible valuation. This is true for the majority of the Jews in question. In 1981, the United States Committee for Refugees, in its World Refugee Survey at page 27, noted as it had not done in many previous reports, the 600,000 Jewish refugees settled from Arab countries three decades ago. But by the next survey in 1982, the World Refugee Survey at page 18 left out that important recognition that there were equally large numbers of Jewish refugees to the Palestinian refugees. Such is the pressure from the Muslims and the left to pretend that there was no expulsion of Jews from Arab countries, at least on the scale of the Muslims who were in Palestine. Many Muslims stayed in Israel to the present day, but because the invading Muslim armies wanted those clear fields of fire to slaughter the Jews, the Palestinian refugees got out of the way. Part 21 of this series covers that issue. University of Chicago population expert Philip Hauser former United States Census Director who represented the United States on the United Nations Population Commission from 1947 to 1951, said in interviews with Joan Peters on 25 November 78 and 15 March 1981 that the report in 1987 that the exchange of populations between out-migrant Arabs and out-migrant Jews is real. Precedents have been established. As far as the unprecedented refusal by the Arabs to accept Arab refugees, some quarters call this a deliberate means of destroying Israel. What the out-migration of Arabs from newly created Israel did was to provide in Arab countries a milieu in which the Arab refugees had access to a common culture and language, 
a unique historical situation in the sense that most refugee populations are faced with the necessity of living in a new cultural and linguistic world in the light of the total situation. And now I will speak not in the demographic vein, but in the less familiar political vein. It would be absurd for the Arabs to insist on what would be double compensation from Israel. The Arab Jews, who had been forced by the Muslims from their home countries in North Africa and Middle East, formed various groups for mutual help and to raise awareness of the number of Jews who had been forced to leave their homes and possessions, and that it was equal to the so-called Palestinian refugees in number, who had been mostly willing to leave their homes. One such Jewish Arab group was called World Organization of Jews from Arab Countries, WOJAC. When WOJAC announced the convening of its organizing conference in Paris for 24 November 1975, the Arabs subsequently issued several of their invitations to Arab-born Jews to come back. They could see where this might go to derail their use of the Palestinian refugees as a tool to attack Israel, and they tried to head it off. How did that go? In parts 4 and 5 of the series, I talked about the brutal treatment that the Muslims had meted out to the Jews over the thousands of years before the State of Israel was created. So after being forcibly evicted from their home countries, in circumstances where they had been forced to leave pretty well everything they owned behind, often including their university degrees and other proof of their academic and professional qualifications that I'll describe in a later program, how was this offer of return from the Muslim countries received by the expelled Arab Jews. The Jews drafted a response to the Muslim gesture of what they called hospitality. The response was read at a press conference called for that purpose. The Jews listed the miseries, the miseries beyond count that they had endured in Muslim Arab society. At a press conference called to reveal to the world the fact that they were declining the Muslim invitation of hospitality. On 11 January 1976, the American Sephardi Federation, representing more than one and a half million Jewish refugees from Arab lands, took a full-page advertisement in the New York Times to decline the Iraqi government's invitation. A photograph of two bodies suspended from a scaffold, surrounded by angry-looking onlookers, was identified as a news service photo. Iraqis watch the bodies of Sabah Hayim, left, and David Hazekiel, both Jews, dangled from the scaffold after they were hanged in Baghdad. Beneath the photograph, the organization responded, inverted commas, invitation declined. We, the Jewish refugees from Arab lands, whose history in those countries go back more than 2,000 years, long before Islam, suggest that the Arab governments finance the welfare of their own brothers instead of using them as political pawns, while they spend huge amounts for hypocritical propaganda, half-truths, and outright lies. 
The world today has forgotten the 800,000 or so Jews who were expelled from Muslim lands because of the creation of the State of Israel. What happened to them? In 1948, Israel, with a population of 650,000 Jews and Arabs and a crushing defence burden which was essential to meet the determined, promised and continually announced Muslim goal of erasing the State of Israel and driving the Jews into the sea, nonetheless successfully absorbed those 800,000 Jewish refugees from the same war that produced the Palestinian refugees. And these Jewish refugees were all absorbed into their own community in Israel. That is, there were roughly 1.2 refugees for every Israeli, and they were absorbed into that society. Staggering. Israel didn't lock its refugees into special camps like the Muslims have done. It then fairly quickly integrated those refugees into Israeli society, a painful and enormously challenging situation. The 50 million Arabs of 1948 refused to absorb 650,000 Arab refugees at the time and have never attempted to do it in the last 75 years. In that time, the Muslim countries enjoyed the fantastic multiplication of their wealth from oil. Every 85 Muslims needed to absorb just one refugee into their community. That sounds pretty simple to me, certainly by comparison to absorbing 1.2 refugees for every one person. Dr. Elfin Rees, the advisor on refugees to the World Council of Churches, has often addressed various bodies on the issue of the Palestinian refugees. This address I'm about to read is reported in the book Century of the Homeless Man by Kurt René Radley, where Dr. Rees said, No large-scale refugee problem has ever been solved by repatriation. And there are certainly no grounds for believing that this particular problem, that is the Palestinian refugee problem, can be so solved. The facts we must face forces us to the conclusion that for most of the world's refugees, the only solution is integration where they are. Dr. Elfenrees went on and noted in another speech that he delivered, reported in the newsletter of the Anglo-Israel Association, issue 47 of October 1957 that the Arab refugee problem is by far the easiest post-war refugee problem by faith, by language, by race and by social organization. They are indistinguishable from their fellows of the host countries. Today, the Muslims in North Africa and the Middle East press for what they assert is the right of return of the Palestinian refugees pursuant to United Nations Resolution 194. What you need to know about that resolution is that when it was being voted on by the members of the United Nations, every, every single North African and Middle East Muslim state voted against it. They voted against it precisely because it did not establish a right to return. And worse still, in their eyes, it did what they did not want to do, namely, the resolution effectively recognised the State of Israel. I remind you again that for the most part, the Palestinian refugees weren't citizens of or even legal residents of the British Mandate. 
mostly they were illegal immigrants. And they certainly weren't people fleeing for their lives at the hands of the Israelis. They were fleeing because the Muslim leadership had urged them to. Resolution 194 itself was affected by a further United Nations resolution that made it clear that return, resettlement and compensation were each different possible outcomes, not just a right of return, just any one of the three options of return, resettlement or compensation were acceptable at the option of the country from which the refugees had come. For example, General Assembly Resolution 393 of 2 December 1950 provided, without prejudice to the provisions of paragraph 11 of General Assembly Resolution 194, the reintegration of the refugees into the economic life of the Near East, either by repatriation or resettlement, is essential for the realisation of conditions of peace and stability in the area. The next resolution passed by the United Nations, Resolution 394 of 14 December 1950, called on the government's concerned to undertake measures to ensure that refugees, whether repatriated or resettled, will be treated without any discrimination, either in law or in fact. And finally, UN Resolution 513 of 26 January 1952 speaks of reintegration either by repatriation or resettlement. It's therefore quite clear from the plain language of these resolutions that the General Assembly did not even try to establish a binding right of return. The issue of return is modified especially by Article 30 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which provides... Nothing in this declaration may be interpreted as implying for any state, group or person any right to engage in any activity or to perform any act aimed at the destruction of any of the rights and freedoms set forth herein. Now, The goal of the repatriated Palestinian refugees was, in the past, explicitly admitted by Arab leaders as the destruction of the State of Israel. For example, the post-1948 Arab-Israeli War Egyptian Foreign Minister Mohammed Salah al-Din declared, as was reported in the Cairo newspaper Al-Misri on 11 October 1949, in demanding the return of the Palestinian refugees, the Arab means their return as masters, not slaves. Or to put it quite clearly, the intention is the extermination of Israel. That was clear. That was clear. Egypt's President Nasser was singing from the same page of the same hymn book as Mohammed Salah al-Din when he reported in the Swiss-German language newspaper New Zurcher Zeitung of 1 September 1960, if the refugees return to Israel, Israel will cease to exist. So extreme was the Arab position that the former director in Jordan of UNWA, Ralph Galloway, as quoted in Terence Pretty's book in The Palestinians' People, History, Politics, as saying, the Arab states do not want to solve the refugee problem. They want to keep it as an open sore, as an affront to the United Nations, and as a weapon against Israel. Arab leaders don't give a damn whether the refugees live or die. 
Notwithstanding this hatred flowing unstoppably from the Muslims to Israel, remarkably to Israel's credit, it has readmitted many people who claim to be Palestinian refugees as a gesture towards reconciliation. As a goodwill gesture, during the Lausanne negotiations in 1949, Israel offered to take back 100,000 Palestinian refugees before any discussions of the refugee question. That was a generous offer. The Arab states, who had refused even to negotiate face-to-face with the Israelis, turned down that offer again because it implicitly recognised Israel's existence. Despite this lack of movement by the Muslims on humanitarian grounds, Israel has since the 1950s allowed more than 50,000 refugees to return to Israel under a family reunification program, and between 1967 and 1993 allowed a further 75,000 to return to the West Bank or Gaza. Then, after the Oslo process began, Israel allowed another 90,000 Palestinians to gain residence in Palestinian-controlled occupied areas inside the state of Israel. Put simply, though, there is no legal right of return. None of the nearly 200 million refugees before and after World War II have had or claimed any such right. So we need to get back to looking at the illegal immigration by Muslims into Palestine. In the period from 1922 to 1948, that so dramatically swelled their numbers in Palestine at the time that Israel came into existence. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in The Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday morning starting at 10.30am. Probably the world's best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum, borrowing the Danish Kulzberg slogan for their beer. If you missed this program, you can catch up with it as a podcast on Spotify, Apple, and many other sites. Search for The Danger Zone, bracket, DZ, close bracket. And if you like this program, you'll definitely love my other program, CYKIAE, also available on the same podcast sites.